corporations want my data. They're like jackals, circling round and round my search history and lunging in to snatch my data away. One megabyte at a time. I can't blame them. I do have the best data. The sexiest, most interesting data out there belongs to me. Corporations want to steal my sexy bitch data and then use it to try and sell me shit. First, they take your data. Then they try to take your money. It's inevitable. They're gonna get your data. There's really no point in getting upset about it. You might as well get angry at COVID-19. Its only means of survival is through infection. What the hell is it supposed to do? What does infuriate me, though, is the barrage of garbage products they think are going to appeal to me. Yes, right when everything's shut down, maybe I spent an hour and a half to three hours looking at survival shovels online. It's a shovel. It's a hatchet. You can spear a squirrel with it, so long as your fat ass can actually run down a squirrel. Take it to a Black Lives Matter protest and hit cops with it. Or protesters. The shovel doesn't care. The survival shovel has no politics. Duct tape your phone to it and use it as a selfie stick. Not all tools have to be used for violence. Use it as a tripod and then subject your followers to another inane and pointless Instagram live. Most of your followers have muted you by now anyway, so go ahead and indulge your vanity. Post that shit now before everyone forgets you exist. The survival shovel is your friend. You ever wonder what the tech giants in Silicon Valley think of you? They all claim they're trying to make the world a better place, a more equitable place. Is equity good? Maybe. Equity sounds good. There's a guy named Yaron, uh, Yaron, Lanier, Jaron. I think he's Jewish, so it might be Yaron. It might be like Israeli. I don't know how you pronounce the name. It's probably Yaron. Maybe it's Jaron. He's uh, he's kind of an eccentric old hippie tech genius. Kind of lives and works in Silicon Valley. He's kind of a, uh, I guess, a futurist philosopher too. He's He seems genuinely concerned with how tech will shape the future and whether or not it's going to be good for humanity. So I'm going to read a quote from him on his opinion of what Facebook and Google and Twitter think of us and our data. There is no reason for you to know what your data means, how it might be used. You can't contribute. We don't know who you are. We don't want to know who you are. You're worthless. You're not going to get paid. It's only valuable once we aggregate it. But you know nothing. You will know nothing. 
You're in the dark. You're useless. You're hopeless. You're nothing. And then a robot made of your data will replace you. The robot is something. The robot is a successor master species. The robot is God, and you're garbage. That's what tech companies, and really all corporations, think of us. They want my data so they can sell me shit. What happens when, uh, and this is not a Terminator 2 Judgment Day machines take over kind of thing. Um, I don't know that I believe machines will take over. I think at a certain point, they will no longer need us. And then the algorithms and the robots will just be selling products to each other, making the rest of us useless. And that is equity. We're getting towards that now. All of us reduced to data processing consumers. But even now and in the near future, we still have some power because we still retain some choice. And tech, comp tech companies are trying to hack our abilities to make choices or to predict our choices. But we still have some power. We still, with a certain amount of effort, can exercise free will in as much as free will actually exists. Until robots and algorithms just start dealing with each other. And that will be when humanity has achieved true equity in that we are all equally useless. Most uh, Game of Thrones fans did not like the final season. I did. I liked it a lot. Most people didn't like it because they didn't find it completely satisfying. Um, I understand that existence kind of has three tenets. One is that everything is always constantly changing. Another is... Um, What's the second one? I forget what the second one is. <laughs> the third one is nothing is ever completely satisfying. I'll think of the second one. I'll come back around to that. That's why I like the final season of Game of Thrones. It wasn't completely satisfying. It's true. It was not. Just like life. Also... I thought it had some kind of timely parallels with contemporary politics, like across the globe. There were four factions at the end of Game of Thrones. You had the Lannisters, who you can equate to kind of old money conservatives, like the Bushes, the Cheneys, the Koch brothers. Then there were the Starks. They're kind of like the old money liberals, like Clintons, Obamas your George Soros's. Then there's the Targaryens. Old money, fallen on hard times, but the new generation managed to lift their fortunes again by becoming 
populists. Kind of like how Trump appealed to the white working class and the alt-right. That is right, Daenerys, Stormborn, Targaryen, Khaleesi is a fucking Trump. Girls and gay dudes loved that bitch because she was fierce and powerful. And then she turned out to be Hitler. Just on her dragon, burning cities to the ground. But the faction I found most interesting was the Army of the Dead. Because they were the only faction that managed to achieve real equity. Khaleesi wanted everyone to be equal. She wanted everyone to be free. She wanted to free all around whatever their continent world was. She wanted to take the chains off of all the slaves. Everyone is free. Kill all the masters. Great. And then in order to achieve that, she kind of had to kill about half of the world. So the other half could be free. But even then, they're not equal. They're just, you know free <laughs> still plenty of inequity going on but the army of the dead they had the closest to equity of all the four factions everyone's equal everyone's dead with blue eyes and they eat brains they achieved equity by killing everyone not half the people killing everyone and then turning them into zombies and zombies are pretty equal it's kind of a perfect communist society really everyone is equal there's no diversity because diversity invites comparison and comparison makes people feel bad um and you can't have that also there's no meritocracy you know one zombie does not have more merit than another because meritocracy is discriminatory it discriminates against those with no merit. And that also makes people feel bad. Zombies never feel bad. They all just share one feeling, and that is, I want more brains. If that's even a feeling, really. It might be a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's just kind of a, a hunger. Zombies never feel bad, but they're also never satisfied. I guess that's kind of the, the best you can get in your perfect society. Again, nothing is ever completely satisfying. What was that second one? First one is everything is constantly changing. Oh, second one is nothing has any enduring value. And it can't. Nothing can have any enduring value because everything is always constantly changing. Also... Number three, nothing is ever completely satisfying. So to recap my analysis of Game of Thrones, Dick Cheney is a Lannister. Barack Obama is a Stark. Ivanka Trump is a Targaryen. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a White Walker. And who am I? Who am I? Sometimes I feel like affable, chubby Samuel Tarley. Just kind of optimistically learning all I can to try and 
I don't know, make the world a better place with my, you know, tiny contributions, or at least feel like I might be able to make a tiny contribution. Most of the time, I kind of feel like the hound. I'm just convinced the world is full of hypocritical cunts, myself included, and uh, just enjoying a good roasted chicken whenever I can. I mean, that dude loved him some chicken. Have I made the world a better place? Probably not. I mean... I spent a good portion of a Sunday looking at survival shovels. I'm not proud of it, but it's not like I actually bought one. So, why the fuck do these bullshit algorithms think I'd be interested in buying a cheap Thor's hammer necklace made in China? I looked at a shovel and like, oh, you're a prepper. Here's a Thor's hammer necklace so you can really exercise your uh, fake Viking identity. Can I just indulge in a zombie apocalypse fantasy without being made complicit in Chinese appropriation of Scandinavian culture? What possible use would I have for a pair of gloves that won't tear as I punch through a car window? Oh, great. I didn't cut my hands. My tarsal bones are all shattered, but thank God I don't need to break out any of my precious Band-Aids. Supply chains have broken down. There's no more Band-Aids being made. In the unlikely scenario, I feel compelled to break a car window. I'm going to use a rock. You know, or a multi-poo. I'll just take some rich girl's purse puppy to break a window probably a rock I mean rocks are free using a multi-pood probably get expensive probably just bounce off the windshield too so I'll go with the rock calm down I'm not spiking dogs into a car window the point is they're gonna get your data we can't stop it they planted a mole in your skiff your secure Compartmentalized Information Facility. Someone asked me the other week if I'd ever been in a skiff. Because, you know, I was in the Army, did intelligence, stuff like that. And I'm like, sure, I had a top secret SCI clearance. And then she was like, so what kind of stuff is in there in the skiff? And I said, top secret stuff. What do you think? (laughs) I can't tell you what's in there. That's the point of having a clearance. And I don't have the clearance now. It expired, but I signed a bunch of non-disclosure agreements. And I don't want to test the uh, legal capacity of the NSA and the CIA. I saw what happened to Snowden. I can tell you what is not in there. I can't tell you what is in a skiff, but I can tell you what is definitely not in a skiff. And uh, I can tell you that nothing that is 
in a secure compartmentalized information facility is even remotely interesting. There's nothing cool in there. It's boring. It might be interesting to a Chinese spy, but to your average QAnon believer, they would be bored to tears and really like like in disbelief at how banal and dull the information, all this top secret stuff is. There's no aliens. There's no documents saying he really killed JFK. No photos of politicians fucking children. Not that I saw. You know, and I had full access. <laughs> Maybe that shit exists, but I don't know where they keep it. It's not in your typical run-of-the-mill top-secret facility. Really, having a top-secret clearance turned out to be a huge letdown. The sexiest seekers I ever came across was like where Saddam was possibly manufacturing sarin gas. And uh, it turned out... None of that was true. <laughs> Much to our collective surprise. Wouldn't it be funny if like someone like Snowden leaked everything that the DOD had on aliens visiting Earth uh, and it turned out to be bullshit. Like once we got like all the journalists to like actually go out and try to verify this information, it would end up being like the WMD in Iraq. <laughs> like the DOD is, was like super convinced aliens had been visiting earth periodically and they were really trying hard to keep it under wraps. And then once, you know, some independent agency tries to verify it, it turns out to be like, WMD in Iraq. It's just like not there. <laughs> and we all got worked up over nothing. <laughs> or maybe it's like uh like the DOD's been actively making plans and spending billions of dollars preparing for an extraterrestrial invasion. And like aliens did visit Earth once, but they thought the Earth was a fucking shithole and they had no intention of ever coming back. To them, Earth is the Iraq of the galaxy. They just decided their non-profit interstellar development dollars would be better spent elsewhere. It's like, there's no hope for Earth. Don't even bother. We're going to head on over to Alpha Centauri because they've actually got a chance of becoming productive members of our intergalactic civilization. <laughs> Earth, they're going to kill themselves and then, uh, you know. Or Earth is like uh, Sentinel Islands, <laughs> where that jackass missionary kid got himself killed trying to convert him to Jesus. <laughs> the the, uh, the Roswell alien landing was, was their version of a... Uh, of a missionary, <laughs> of an overzealous missionary, and then we killed them, <laughs> and 
the intergalactic space lords just kind of cordoned Earth off and just said, mm, that's off limits. <laughs> They're just going to be on their little island doing their own thing. Don't even try to go there. It's not worth it. The corporate, anyway, we're talking about corporations stealing your data. Corporations, they've got access to your highest levels. They got a spy in your skiff. You've got a capitalist pig spy in your secure compartmentalized information facility, and they're digging through all your data. So what do you do when you know you have a spy? You know you've got a spy in your network. What do you do? We've all seen spy movies. We've all seen Tinker Tailor. You know, a bunch of MI6 agents. Closeted homosexuals tempted into sordid indiscretions by fiercely seductive KGB twinks. And then blackmailed. Those MI6 guys, they get blackmailed into compromising Her Majesty's national security. I get it. Those Russian twinks were hot. They're just wearing those like tight 60s bell bottoms, just perfectly molded to their Cossack buttocks. I very much like for you to touch my St. Peter's Basilica. You make me feel like to explode, like Chernobyl. What do you do with a spy? You don't kill the spy. If you kill the spy, then the enemy knows you know they have a spy in your organization. Then they send another spy you don't know about. You don't kill the spy. You feed the spy. You feed the spy false information and hope the enemy uses that intel in a way that is harmful to them. Uh, another good show. Probably better than Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones was not a perfect show. It was a fun show. A really good show, better than Game of Thrones, is The Americans on FX. Everyone should watch The Americans. There's an episode there where the Americans, who are really just sleeper agents, well, I guess they're not really sleeper agents because they're fucking active, but they're embedded spies in America, living like Americans. And then they steal these plans for a, uh, I think it's like a submarine propeller. Yeah, something that goes on the submarine. Um, I think it's a propeller. And... Uh, sorry, I had to cough. Submarine propeller. So the Russian spies, pretending to be Americans, they steal like a submarine, or the plans to a submarine propeller. Then they send it back to Russia. Russia manufactures this American-designed submarine propeller, put it on a submarine, and the submarine fucking explodes and kills everyone on board. And then the spies... Are, are really angry that the Americans would, would do this, that the Americans would, uh, like, plant this uh, false information knowing that the Russian spies would steal the plans and then would sabotage, you know. Basically, they're blaming the Americans. <laughs> and it makes them even more angrier, and they want to do more damage to capitalist pig America. Um, that's what you got to do with your data. 
You got to plant false information. So when the enemy steals it, the enemy being Facebook, and they sell your data to whoever, and they try to sell you some shit, they try to put some unsolicited ads on your Instagram feed, you're not tempted. You're not tempted to click on these ads for that high-speed anti-corona mask or whatever. Actually, I think that episode, it turned out that the Americans did not plant false information. It's just the Russians were incompetent and fucked up the propeller. (laughs) And that's what sank the ship. (laughs) But either way, it's a good idea. False information. Got to keep Facebook guessing. Don't let them pin you down because then they own you. Then they take away your choice, your power of choice, if that even exists. They're basically taking away your free will. And I'm more and more convinced there's not really a such thing as a free will, but I still want to believe that it's possible to achieve free will, if only rarely. And I'm not going to let fucking Facebook take that away from me. So at this point, I'm running an intense disinformation campaign. Facebook, Google, and Amazon, they've got spies in my network, and I know who they are. I know who the spy is, so I feed her lies and half-truths so the corporate pigs can't tempt me with targeted ads. This morning, I spent 15 minutes Googling symptoms of menopause. Night sweats, bone loss, why do my breasts feel less full? Now, already today, my Instagram feed is full of ads for calcium supplements and laser hair removal. Your move, Zuckerberg. I just made you sink your own battleship, bitch. Ladies, if you want to not be tempted by all those targeted ads on Instagram, distracting you from choosing the right filter to hide your upper arm fat, start Googling what's in my search history. Shit like artisanal smoked venison and hand-forged pocket knives. You know, just like shit you have no interest in because you are not an armchair caveman like I am. But do be prepared to occasionally get sucked into buying shit you didn't know you wanted. Because in my fridge right now, I do have five cases of calcium-enriched chocolate pudding because I'm human. It's delicious. And if I fall down, I don't want to break a hip. So I am making a, how do I describe this confectionery delights that I'm making right now? So uh, once or twice a year, I usually make uh, pumpkin bars because they're fucking delicious and they're pretty easy to make. I got the recipe from a roommate, I don't know, probably 10, might be 15 years ago now. Uh, And I'm not on the pumpkin bandwagon. I don't really like pumpkin. Pumpkin pie is disgusting. 
I don't like all the pumpkin spice bullshit, but I had a bite of these and they were fucking amazing. And it's not because they're pumpkin. The secret is a pound of butterscotch chips. That is the secret. You pour a pound of butterscotch chips in this thing and then they kind of like melt and sink down to the bottom and it's gooey and it makes your teeth hurt and it's amazing. And then, uh, I don't know, maybe it was a month ago, six weeks ago, I made a skillet cake, which was also very easy. So now I'm combining the two now because, you know, the pumpkin bars are good, but the whole idea of putting them in a bar, it's very, it's very like Girl Scout bake sale to me. I don't like, I don't like it in the bar form. Um, so I said, why not combine the two? I'm going to make a pumpkin bar skillet cake. And uh, yeah, because I just make shit up. If you read the recipe and follow any recipe to the letter, you are a fucking cuck. You are a cuck bitch. So uh, yeah, so I took the pumpkin bars. I adjusted the recipe a bit. And, you know, I'll tell you a little story. Maybe when I was crowing over my uh, skillet cake before, I may have mentioned this. I don't remember. But I don't have measuring cups. I don't have measuring spoons. I don't have any of that domestic bullshit. I don't, I don't have a Cuisinart or a food processor or one of those big $1,000 things that suburban housewives have. No, I don't have any of that shit. I don't even have like an electric, electric egg beaters. I don't even have that. I got a bowl. I got a wooden spoon. And that's all I fucking need. That's all I need. So I adjusted the recipe a bit, poured the uh, the pumpkin bar batter. And, oh, Patrick, how how do you measure? How do you know how much to put in? I, I, I eyeball that shit. You know what I did? I got a rocks glass that I drink my scotch out of. That's a cup. That's a cup. It's probably more than a cup, but who gives a shit? And they, you know, when you look at the recipe, like these pumpkin bars, there's like half a, you know, by the recipe, half a cup of pumpkin puree, which is nothing. There's a full cup of butter, a full cup of sugar, two cups of flour, and you want half a cup. Pumpkin is the lead word in the name of the dish. And pumpkin, there's barely any pumpkin in it. So I don't add more pumpkin because, again, I don't like pumpkin. It's all about the butterscotch chips. Um, but then, you know, there's nutmeg, cinnamon, and nutmeg's pretty strong. So, But it says put a tea and a tea, teaspoon in it. A teaspoon is nothing. It says put a, uh, a quarter teaspoon of salt. What is that? Is there even a, a measuring spoon that measures out to a quarter of a teaspoon? That's like, uh, just say a pinch. I don't know what that is. I just put a pinch of salt. Yeah, I put three pinches in it. Whatever. Who gives, you know, I don't give a fuck. And then, uh, but the cinnamon, I mean, I'm a fan of cinnamon. I'm a huge fan of cinnamon. And they want a teaspoon of cinnamon in this shit? No, four tablespoons. Four tablespoons of cinnamon. That's how much goes into my pumpkin bar skillet cake. So I adjust it. And instead of putting it in like little cake pans, which also, you know, the fuck would I own a cake pan? I just pour the whole batter into a cast iron cowboy skillet. Because I'm a man. And I'll tell you a little story. If you if you call yourself a man and you 
don't know how to bake anything, you're not a man. And that's fine. I mean, that's cool. But you should accept who you are and not keep telling the world how much of a man you are. Leave that to people like me. (laughs) All that said, it's supposed to bake in 30, 35 minutes. It's been over an hour. It's still not done yet. Still not fucking done. So I'm going to have to put this on pause in a couple of minutes and check on it because, uh, what is it? It's like 525 now. Uh, I put this thing in the oven at 410. <laughs> it's it's still pretty soggy in the middle. That's because it's thick, though. It's thick. It's a thick-ass skillet cake. So it's going to take some time, and that's fine, you know. If anything is worth doing, it's worth taking the time to do it. It is taking kind of long, though. <laughs> All right. Oh no! See, I wrote a bunch of stuff. Wrote a bunch of. I've been thinking about a lot of little chapters of my life that would make for good podcast stories, and they're actually quite a bit. It's kind of like I used to. I used to kind of be obsessed with having stories when I was younger because I liked. I liked. I liked older people. Not older, older, but you know, they were like thirty when I was 19, 20 in the army, guys who were like, you know, in their thirties had stories and I always wanted to have like stories. And actually already for a 19 year old, I had a lot of stories. Um, but I realized lately, like I've got a lot of stories, but once I've lived through it and experienced it, I'm not that interested in telling it anymore it's like i wanted to i kind of wanted to be the guy with all the stories because i always love those guys who just could tell a great story um but it's kind of like once it happened to me it's not that special anymore it's like it's not because i did it or i was able to do it or i experienced it somehow it's it's not that worthy of a story and that's kind of something i need to get over Because a lot of them are. A lot of them are totally worthy of a story. I mean, now I hear people's stories doing comedy with other amateur comedians. And a lot of them come up and try to turn one of their life stories into a bit. And I'm like, your life is boring. Your story is boring. (laughs) Oh, you got really drunk on the beach and threw up? I go, that's not a story. (laughs) Now, if you are good at comedy... You could make that really funny, but that's just kind of putting bells and whistles on it. Like the the core elements of that story are not really interesting. You're just a jackass kid and you don't know how to drink properly. But I've definitely heard a lot of otherwise dull stories made amazing and funny and interesting because of the, you know, whatever details that the person decides to put on them. But that's more of like the skill of the person. That's not that the event is necessarily worthy of a story. Um, So, and then I wrote a bunch of like little things down that'll lead me into a story. A lot of these are kind of deep though. I don't know. I'd have to like, I'll have to get in the mood to tell some of them. Let's tell the story about the time I was an extra in a Bollywood movie. 
Bollywood, as in India. Uh, but first, I'm going to pause because I think I forgot to turn the oven off. I did. I totally forgot to turn the oven off. Cool. Anyway, Bollywood. So, I want to say this was 2007, maybe? So, I took my first acting class 2003 when I got out of the Army. Um, and then uh, then I just did some classes. I did maybe two years of classes because I was not a good actor at all. I was... I was pretty bad. No emotion, no facial expressions, no nothing. Um, and then slowly I started to loosen up and being more comfortable. Really, acting is uh, it's, acting's funny. It's really like all your training and all your classes and all, all the shit you learn is really just how to get over your own shit. It's most of the training is is being okay with looking stupid in front of strangers. That's really what the essence of acting is. And then once you kind of get that down, then you can do more specific technical, you can do more specific technical training on voice and movements and uh, diction and things, especially once you start doing classical acting. But those first couple of years were just me and everyone else trying trying not to look stupid and failing because when you try not to look stupid while you're acting you look stupid <laughs> it's like uh i've heard like cool is the death of comedy which is which is true like you can't be cool and be funny and that seems like it's not true. Like a lot of you might be going, well, no, like I know like some of my favorite like comedians or comedic actors, like they're cool. And I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're cool because they don't give a shit about being cool. They're not cool like, you know, like Bruce Willis and uh, Die Hard is cool. <laughs> it's not like that's not funny. And, you know, he has funny moments in the thing, but also like he's an actor. So he's okay with look. You don't realize that, you know, when you haven't tried to do it. But we think of being cool as like, I guess old school examples are like James Dean or uh, uh, Steve McQueen. But when you go back and watch their shit, you're like, oh, no, they're pretty, they're pretty vulnerable. Like, and they, you know, they're regularly like they look, they have lots of moments in movies where they look dumb. You know, they look stupid. Um, they look not cool. But collectively, because they do that, we're like, oh, that guy's cool. Because it is, it is cool to just be yourself and not give a shit. But so few of us can actually make that happen. And I really didn't learn how to do that until I was a couple years into doing theater. Like, it's just, you know, I was... And I only did it because I did not want to fail. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't too concerned about not being good as an actor because I was more of like a writer at that point. I was going to school for writing and acting was just kind of like a fun thing to do to make me a better writer. But I didn't want to fail as an actor. So I really had to dig deep and like, what is this? What is this bullshit I'm holding on to that won't let me look stupid? 
um, in front of strangers, which is really all acting is. It's yeah, it was interesting. So it was sort of like it spent a long time learning how to do that. When you think like, I guess it's what like people who suffer from like depression when no one else really understands what they're going through. And they're like, well, why don't you just like snap out of it? It's like, you can't snap out of it. This is like, this is the the fiber of my being. You know, for me, it was like, I probably because I was a fat kid in high school. So most of my 20s was trying to not, trying to stuff that fat, that, that former fat kid in a closet and not let anybody gl- take a glimpse at it. Um, yeah, so it took me a while to get over that. But anyway, um, so I'd been acting for a couple of years and then after a couple of years I decided like, all right, let me get out there and let me try to do like a little play. Maybe I'll do some student films. Let me just put, you know, all this training to work, see how this acting thing goes. And then, uh, I got cast cause they were looking for, uh, and most, most of the, I didn't do a lot of TV or, or film. Actually, I didn't do any TV. I did a couple. I did a couple like indie movies locally. I did a couple of student films, and then I was an extra in some like big budget feature Hollywood type things that came to town. Um, although that that being an that's cool to do once, like to be an extra on a big movie is cool once, and then just to see like behind the scenes and see how everything works when they're making the movie, but it's not fun. And it's a long ass day. It's really, and I go, okay, I saw how it works. I don't need to do this again. Um, and other, the other, actually the worst part was the other extras, the other like background actors. And you're not even really, they say you're background actors. You're not an actor. You're a prop. You're like a set piece. Um, the yeah the movie has nothing to do with you but a lot of these extras don't know that <laughs> they think and it's funny in this town because this is like this is dc maryland virginia area this is not la but a lot of these people thought like this was their path to stardom or something like doing being an extra on transformers 4 or whatever it was that shot in DC, like somehow they're going to get discovered and that's going to launch their little star of the sky. And you're like, no, they're here. This big budget. First of all, I don't, that doesn't really happen in LA. That doesn't work like that. Like nobody gives a shit about the extras. That's just something. If you're like a struggling actor, you might take a couple days of extra work just to pay your rent, but you're not getting, discovered and you might meet some other people at your level who are really doing cool things maybe i didn't i met a bunch of fucking freaks there i've been a bunch of retired people and a bunch of freaks who wouldn't shut up about their acting coaches and i go i don't know what an acting coach is like you either take a class or don't take a class i don't know who you're giving money to to tell you that somehow you're gonna have a career as an actor on the East coast and not in New York. Um, yeah. So that was probably the worst part. Just having to like hang out and talk with these people all day. Who are clearly delusional. Um, 
But I mean some of them doing stand-up, too. <laughs> now that I think about it. I had this, I think it was last week or the week before, there was this fucking kid. I was leaving a mic, and this kid was out there, like, smoking his little vape pen, this little chubby kid. I'd never seen him before. And then he was, there was some annoying girl, I think she was from out of town. Um, and then she was, she was trying to do as many mics as she could and the guy was telling her like oh yeah it doesn't really work like that in dc like these are kind of all pre-booked showcases this that one was the only kind of like sign up on side open mic and he was like and this guy was i don't know he's probably hitting on her but maybe maybe i think he thought he was maybe hitting on her but he clearly did not know how to do that um and he was said something like, yeah, you know, it's it's kind of bullshit, really. It's all, you know, there's no open mics. It's all pre-booked showcases. And, like, you know, you got to network and, like, get to know people. And, and like, I, I refuse to play that game. <laughs> and I'm just fucking, I'm just kind of, like, passively listening off to the side, waiting for my lift to show up <laughs> so I can go home. And I'm just trying not to laugh out loud at this kid. Like, I'm, you know, I don't want to talk to people and get to know them and, like, and, you know, meet and maybe we have something in common and then, like, maybe, you know, we can help each other out. And, you know, I don't want to play that game that the whole fucking world runs on. He's like, no, I mean, so I don't get to do as many shows, but, you know, I've got my integrity. And I'm like, I did not, I did not hear his set but i know it was not funny <laughs> i know it was not funny at all that's one thing i do know and it's funny because i can kind of sympathize a little bit you know i do have that where it is annoying like i don't know i don't know who i don't know the people who run that room i'd like to do comedy there but you know it sucks that like i gotta get to know i gotta get to know people and be a human being which is really all it is. <laughs> but I'm like, yeah, okay, well, eventually, you know, maybe I'll see them on a mic and I'll introduce myself and say hi like an adult and, you know, maybe six months or a year from now, hey, maybe I'll get to do that room. That'll be... <laughs> I have my integrity. Everyone has to know exactly how awesome and funny I am and you just put me on your show and maybe I'll do it because I have integrity. <laughs> Yeah. So I've only met a couple people like that doing comedy so far. You go on a movie set, that is 90% of the extras on a movie set are like that. Just fucking delusional about how even basic things in, in the business of like film or movies work or how acting works. It's, it's crazy. Um, it's not that crazy because, you know, that, that attracts that sort of element. Cause it's like glamorous on the outside. That's funny too. Like it's see, you know, they make it seem glamorous on the outside and cool. But you know, if you go to a rap party for something, it's pretty like, you know, there's, there's cobwebs in the corner, you know, there's like grease paint all over everything. It's not, it's all smoke and mirrors. It's really just kind of like a dirty seedy kind of grungy thing. Like comedy is, um, yeah anyway Bollywood 
I haven't even gotten to Bollywood yet. See, this is what I want to work on. Well, I don't know. <laughs> One story leads to the next. One story leads to nine anecdotes, and I never finish a story. That's cool. All right. Uh, I'm going to get more coffee. Bollywood next. All right, Bollywood. So I think at this point, I was in undergrad. Um, so this is maybe, I don't know, maybe 2005, 6, 7, somewhere around there. Probably 2006 or 7. Um, and then I just got like a little casting email from a local casting agency saying they were looking for Secret Service type extras. Um, and whenever I saw that, I usually... If I had the time, that was a thing. So I didn't do a lot of this kind of work because one, it wasn't that fun, and it usually didn't pay that well. You usually got a hundred bucks for the day, and this would be like an eight or a twelve-hour day, and most of it was like non-union, so there was no like minimum they had to pay you. So most of them play paid dog shit, and it was usually you know some piece of shit project was never going to see the light of day, and they love to tell you like, oh, you get free lunch, and like you never get free lunch. Um, and I'm not, you know, free food is not like some people do anything for free food or a free t-shirt. It's fucking, it's fucking ridiculous. I'm like, no, like I value my time more than the price of a fucking sandwich or a $8 t-shirt. Um, but they love to tell you like, oh yeah. And you'll get a reel and you can use it on your resume and like, you never get a reel and this dumb credit is not doesn't look good on your resume that you did some some local indie bullshit. Um, but it may be fun. The people may be cool. Um, I wanted to do this one because it was a Bollywood movie, and I knew I would definitely get in because anything anything police or military when they look for that type, I know I'm getting the part. Every time I've gone out for those parts, I've always gotten them. <laughs> I know I'm going to be the cop or the military dude because I just look like that. And this was a Bollywood movie. And I said, you know what? That sounds like it might be fun. I want to do the Bollywood movie. <laughs> uh, and the pay was decent. It was like, I think it was two days. So about, you know, eight hours a day. Basically, I... I knew I'd just be standing around in a suit looking like a Secret Service dude. Like, yeah, you're not acting. <laughs> basically, it's basically modeling. Um, so I want to say the pay was going to be 200 for the day, which is pretty good. That's more than you usually get. Um, and then I was kind of poor. I was, mm, I was poor. I wasn't super poor because I got a lot of grants and loans, um, which I'm paying for now. <laughs> but like now I'll turn down $200 um, for something because, you know, I make that in an hour and a half. But back then I did not, you know, and any little bit of extra cash was definitely welcome. So um, $200 is great. You know, for two days, $400, I'm like, oh, fuck yeah. I know exactly what I could do with $400. Um, so I go out. I go to the little... Um, actually, I think it, there wasn't even an audition. I just had to send a headshot and like a full body shot. And they were, you know, and they wrote back right away. They're like, all right, yeah, you're in. <laughs> so I didn't even have to show up an audition for this thing. 
Uh, they're like, as long as these pictures are accurate, you're hired. <laughs> as long as, as long as you're not actually 10 years older and 50 pounds fatter, you're hired. Uh, so I show up, give me my suit and it's a fucking Bollywood movie. It's all Indian. So it's set at, um, this is in Northern Virginia. I think it's called the Belmont country club. So it's basically just like a golf course slash country club out in kind of northern Virginia somewhere. Um, so I go into the course, and then um, the whole, uh, I guess they'd rented out the whole the whole club for the movie, or at least part, part of the outdoor side for the movie. And really, they're shooting like three scenes, which is also, this why movies take forever. It takes forever just to set up a scene. So it's basically, there were four of us. Actually, there were only two of us. Uh, or maybe there were three of us. I don't know. Anyway, so it's a bunch of Indians and then a couple whiteies like me. Um, was there a black dude? There might have been a black dude. I don't remember. I think there was a token black dude. Uh, who were going to be like American Secret Service. And so I think... Don't know what I've tried to look the movie up, but I, I can't. I don't even know if it ever came to light. But it was like a legit Bollywood movie, um, and it was pretty. It was the, the whole experience was kind of cool. I mean, it was boring day to day, but there were lots of tiny little funny anecdotes in it. Like, so I think they were using the they were using the side of the the clubhouse or the building, the the club, um, because it had like these little pillars, like these Corinthian type pillars, which I think were supposed to be the White House. So I'm basically just standing outside in the bright ass sun, which is not good for my lily white skin, which is also why I stopped doing extra work because it is, a lot of times you're just standing out in the sun all day. I go, I can't do that. I'm going to get melanoma, motherfuckers. <laughs> I can't just, sunscreen is bullshit. It doesn't work. I can't be hanging outside with no hat for like eight hours a day. Um, so I did this. Well, basically I did it for a day and a couple hours in the morning. But the first day. So it's me and another guy who totally has had some some cool guy like like quaffed hair. Um was not Secret Service hair. I don't know why they let him get away with his hair. I think they wanted him to cut it, and he said, well, no, I got, I, I'm booked for another movie after this, so I can't cut my hair, which is a total fucking lie, and they just let him keep the hair. There was an older, fatter dude with a big handlebar mustache. They're like, dude, you don't look Secret Service. Get the fuck out of here. He's like, all right. He's like, you're too fat, and what is this mustache? You can't. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, it might have just been me and the other guy. I thought maybe there was a black dude. Or maybe he was doing something else. Um, yeah, I can't remember. But there, there were at least two of us. Um, so we're the only white dudes on the set. And uh, there's... Uh, it, it was like... It was like an American movie, except everyone was Indian. So there was like the director of the movie had a total like uh, Spielberg at Sundance vibe to him. So he had like a little short, close-cropped beard. 
he had like a ball cap, like a, I think it was like a Denver Broncos cap or something. I don't know. I don't know where he got it. And he had like a big puffy parka on. And this is, this was summertime. This was June or July and it was hot. And he's, you know, it was like 85, 90, like it wasn't super hot, but it wasn't cool. And he's walking around in this big ass, like puffy parka, like he's at Sundance. (laughs) And I'm like, I know it's hot in India, but I don't know if you need a coat at 85 degrees hot. It's like 85 degrees to you, like 30 degrees to me. Even 30 degrees, I I wouldn't wear a puffy ass parka like that. That's like a, that's like a five degree (laughs) coat he had on. But he's totally going for the look. It was just, you know, he was being a poser about the look. He wanted to look like Spielberg. He wanted to look like a director looks. Uh, but he seemed to know what he's doing. You know, he had confidence and like, all right, I'm setting up the shot. I want the lights over here, bring, you know, roll sounds, all that shit. Although it's all in Hindi, but I could kind of tell what he was doing. And then there were two stars. So I think the plot of the movie had something to do with like, one of the stars was like the ambassador, the Indian ambassador to the United States. And then he had like a little sidekick. And I think, and this shot was like me and the other guy, I guess we're American Secret Service and we were escorting the Indian ambassador to wherever. And I'm like, does our Secret Service do that? I don't know if American Secret Service, and I could kind of tell what it was. It was kind of like a, it was kind of like a subtle hint that that American politics is subservient to Indian politics. It was very it was very like India centric the theme. I thought that was kind of interesting because I go, you guys have your own security, right? I don't know. I could be wrong. I don't. I don't think American Secret Service protects foreign diplomats. Uh, I think they have their own measures for that. But who knows? I guess I could Google that, but I'm probably not going to. Um, so, yeah, so there was the the main actor who's the star. He's like the leading man. And he looked like the Indian Burt Reynolds. He had like a Burt Reynolds mustache. He kind of had like kind of kind of older, handsome-ish guy, maybe 20, 30 pounds overweight, you know, like comfortable looking. Um and then he had a little sidekick who was clearly like the funny guy. Like, I didn't understand a word he was saying, but he, he had the movements. He had like the technical, actory, comedic movements. He he pulled little mug, mug type faces at the camera, like, you know, makes his eyes big, squints his eyes, makes faces, just kind of cheesy like. Uh, and he, have a, he had a very short, fast, like clipped way of talking. So I could tell he was like, he was telling jokes. Um, and he looked like the Indian Joe Pesci. So we had Indian Burt Reynolds, Indian Joe Pesci starring and co-starring in the movie. And then me just looking like a fucking cigar store Indian in a suit, (laughs) just standing next to them the whole time. Um, and it was, you know, it was kind of boring. We we're there all day, but it was interesting just to see. It was just like the Indian version of an American movie. It was kind of like the same tropes, the same stereotypes, the same types of characters. They they, they clearly had a leading man 
and a character actor. Um, they didn't have many women. They had some Indian women who were kind of like extras, but they were just kind of in the backgrounds. There was no, there was no smart, sassy love interest, at least in these couple scenes. Um, and there was no singing or dancing. So I don't know if any part of this movie was musical at all, but the scenes I, I was in were not. Which I was disappointed in that. I wanted to see like a whole choreographed Bollywood number, but I didn't get to see that. Um, so the first day was kind of long. It was maybe probably about eight hours, but it was kind of interesting to just to see how they were doing this movie. And we got a great lunch. The first day lunch was like great Indian food. I don't know where they got it, but um, I think there was a fair amount of uh, like within the Indian community in Virginia, I think this movie coming to town was a big deal. So I think I think I think the local like local Indian American women just like made the cast and crew all lunch. Like they just brought lots of Indian food that first day to feed everybody because they were all excited that like an Indian movie was being. Um, and then the second day was different. So we showed up showed up eight a.m. the second day. We we're supposed to start shooting at nine, and. Uh, Actually, I think it was earlier. I think we showed up at 7, start shooting at 8, because we had to get a scene down. There was a scene with a helicopter, like a legit, real helicopter. It was a tiny little, like, two-seater that they had hired. And the scene was supposed to be, I escort the ambassador, the Indian ambassador, from the White House slash golf club to the helicopter the actor gets in the helicopter and they fly away. And the, I think this is like, I think this is the end of the movie. I think this is the end scene of the movie. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. It seemed like a very final thing. So I'm like, oh, is this how the movie ends? He flies off. Um, so lead actor comes out. The Joe Pesci character actor comes out with him. They're walking and talking kind of Aaron Sorkin style, like bantering back and forth. And then I'm following behind them. I open the door of the helicopter for the ambassador. And this is like a little, this is like a weird little yellow two-seater helicopter. Not very political or official looking at all, but maybe that doesn't matter in India. <laughs> like just any helicopter will do. But I was like, what is this fucking, like I've jumped out of helicopters before. This was not a military or it definitely did not look like Marine One. This was a tiny little like two-seater. Um, so, but I was supposed to like go open the door of the helicopter and the blades are going and this is a tiny helicopter and I'm like, you know, it reminded me of like a little bird when I was in the army and I'm like, all right, I don't want my head to get chopped off. Um, so we're all ducking down low under the blades. I open up the door and then ambassador gets in, I shut the door and then the pilot flies away with the ambassador. Um, so that was fine. And we kept doing it over and over again, maybe five or six times. And then at nine o'clock, this is a golf course, a golf tournament starts right next to us. And there's a bunch of dudes at the driving range hitting balls. And I didn't know this. I don't know. I think the direct, not the director, the producer of this movie, who I haven't gotten into yet, it was kind of shady. Um, so I guess 
what happened was we were supposed to be done and off the property by 9 a.m. Like, I was prepared for this to be a full day. Um, we were supposed to be off the property by 9 a.m. And then we were running late. I guess we weren't getting the shot the Indian Spielberg wanted. So we just kept doing it over and over again. Um, just burning fuel. And I think the helicopter, he was like, I only got maybe two trips left and then I got to fly back and refuel. Um, so we're kind of right at it and then nine o'clock hits and then these guys start hitting balls in the driver's range. And then, so the helicopter flies away and it's coming back to land to start the scene again. And then these fucking assholes who are at the driver's range start trying to hit the helicopter with their golf balls because <laughs> it's flying in that low. It's flying in, you know, it's a good maybe, I don't know, I think it's less than 100 feet off the ground. And all these motherfuckers in the driver's range are trying to hit the helicopter with their golf balls, golf balls which will, can cause the helicopter to crash. Like helicopters are kind of fragile, and this is this isn't this isn't a Hein. This isn't some big Russian tank helicopter that can take a fucking RPG around. This is a tiny little yellow two seater. It's basically almost a jet ski <laughs> with rotors on it, and these fucking assholes are hitting golf balls at it. So um, one guy runs over to the guys in the driving range yells at them like hey stop you're gonna kill these motherfuckers and then the whoever the manager of the whole place comes out and he kicks us all off the lot because i guess we were supposed to be done by nine and i think he was kind of not happy that this whole movie was happening anyway because i guess for them like the golf tournament was important for them like important for their paying members and i guess the movie people were not paying them enough to like disrupt the golf tournament so he kicks us all off the lot and then I'm like, okay, I guess I get to go home early. And then the uh, then comes the producer of this movie. His name's Go Gobi, something Gobi, or maybe that was his first name. And he's a local Virginia guy. He's Indian, um, but he's kind of like the local fixer, the local fixer producer. He lives in Northern Virginia, or he did live in Northern Virginia. Um, and he's the one who paid us. So I got paid in traveler's checks. I forgot that part. So at the end of the day. I got paid my $200 in traveler's checks. And like, I think they were, no, they was, it was $250 a day. That's, yeah, that's, it was pretty nice. Um, so I got five $50 traveler's checks, which I'd never really, these were like American Express traveler's checks. I'd never really, I'm like, how do I cash these? I don't know. I don't know what to do with a traveler's check. What the fuck is this? Um, traveler's check. I remember those from like in the 80s. Like, if you want to keep your money safe when you travel overseas, get traveler's checks. That was before, like, debit cards and shit. Um, that was definitely before Venmo. Um, no Apple Pay. So I get paid in these traveler's checks. And then the second day, we're getting kicked off the lot. Oh, and lunch was going to be McDonald's this time, these motherfuckers. The first day was great, great Indian food. Second day, it's like... They just got a bunch of like dollar cheeseburgers at McDonald's and tried to pass them out to everybody. And I'm like, no, fuck your cheeseburger. I'm not eating that shit. I'll just starve. It's fine. Um, so then the second day, the producer's a shady shit and he doesn't want to pay us. 
So we're so he calls us all individually. Uh, there are maybe like twelve of us total who are like different extras on the movie, or on these couple scenes. Um, and he calls each of us individually and gives us like, yeah. So um, so this is going to be the end of the day today. Um, uh, how much do you think I should pay you? <laughs> and I'm like, well, you should pay me two fifty for the day. And he goes, yes, I know, but but we didn't finish. We didn't finish uh, shooting, so I mean, we've only been here two hours. How much do you think I should pay you? I said, you should pay me two fifty. None of this, all of this, is your fault, not my fault, that we're ending early. I cleared my day. He's, like, I could have gone somewhere else and made two hundred, and I was totally lying. I was like, I could go somewhere else, and like, you know, I'm in a union. I can't take less than what you promised, which was also not true. I was not in any union at that point. Um, so then he just kind of rolled his eyes and gave me the 250 and, and then I was out. <laughs> I said, thank you. Now I'm going to spend the rest of the day trying to figure out how to cash a fucking traveler's check. <laughs> yeah. So, and that was it. That was the end of the movie. Oh, and then maybe two years later, I forgot this guy's last name. Yeah, it was Gobi something. I've forgotten his last name since, but. Two years later, I was just driving, listening to the radio, and then I think it was listening to NPR, and then I heard his name on NPR, this Gobi producer guy who tried to stiff me out of my money. Um, he was arrested, charged and sentenced to like two or three years in prison because of some sort of like financial bank fraud scheme or something like that. <laughs> But I distinctly remembered his name. I'm like, that's that motherfucker who tried to screw me out of my money. My hard-earned Bollywood <laughs> traveler's checks. So this, he was a, I think this was some type of real estate scam. I don't quite remember. But this was, this was pre-2008, I think. Maybe it had something to do with the whole housing crisis. I don't know. But he got charged, sentenced. I think I remember he, they said he got sentenced to like a couple, not a lot of years, maybe two, three years in prison. Something to do with like real estate fraud. Um, yeah, shady ass movie producers. All right. That is my extra in a Bollywood movie story. It was not as cool as I was hoping because there was no singing or dancing, but it was it was pretty interesting. Mostly the uh, the Indian versions of Spielberg, Burt Reynolds, and Joe Pesci were probably the most amusing. And motherfuckers trying to crush a helicopter. All right, this is unapproachable. Patrick Fury. You guys know that already. All right, maybe I'll cut that out. Although probably not, because that requires work. I'll just let it go. Who gives a shit?